you imagine as we begin tonight that you're a citizen of the Roman Empire living in some far-flung province. It doesn't really matter which one. We don't have to get that specific in our imagining. But the emperor has just died. This is a time of great anxiety, of insecurity that's difficult for us to understand as accustomed as we are to the peaceful transition of power. This is not something that we have to deal with in our modern world. But in the ancient world, you would be faced with all sorts of questions during such transitional times. What's going to happen next? Are we going to have enough food to eat or are grain grain imports going to be disturbed? Is commerce going to be disrupted? Are there going to be pirates now running rampant on the Mediterranean Sea? Believe it or not, a real concern at various times in Roman history. Will there be civil war? Is society simply going to collapse into chaos? And in the midst of this uncertainty, this insecurity, A herald comes, invested with the authority of the empire. An envoy with an official proclamation. We have a new emperor. There will be justice. There will be peace. There will be prosperity. There will be a chicken in every pot. Two chariots in every garage. You know, you can imagine the way that this would run. All of this was standard procedure in the Roman world. The term for what that herald was doing in Greek is the same word that is used for proclaiming or for preaching in the New Testament. The noun for that herald is preacher. The message that he brought was referred to as good news, that is, gospel. All the same terminology that we're familiar with from the New Testament. And that historical background helps us, I think, to understand the significance of our word this week, which is proclaim. Now, in the New Testament, Proclaim is used almost solely for the act of heralding or publishing what has already taken place. Something that has been done, we're proclaiming that that's happened. And a number of Greek words are used to translate or are translated by this term proclaim, I should say. One important group of Greek words comes from the root angelo. Uh, The noun form is angelos. Now, angelo means simply to announce or to bring or to bear a message. And if you see the middle of that word there, euangelizomai, we'll get to that in a second, but angelo in the middle there, if you see angel, that's because that's what that noun means. The word angel, angelos, literally that means a messenger. 
So it's dependent on the context, interestingly, whether or not we translate that as just a human messenger or as a supernatural being. You wouldn't necessarily know that from reading your English Bible, but sometimes where you see it translated messenger in the Greek, that's an angel. But that's where this word comes from, the verb, someone who's carrying a message. Prefixes attached to that verb, angelo, give it different nuances. And one of those prefixes is here. Euangelizomai. That's the most important of these. Now, again, that's derived, that root there is angelo, to announce or to carry a message. But that prefix, eu, eu, indicates that that message that's being brought is happy. It's good news. This is something that brings joy. And forms of this word are translated into English by words or by phrases like preach or preach the good news, or preach the gospel. In fact, if you look at that, it probably looks a lot like evangelize or evangelist, evangelism. That's where those English words come from. This is what we're talking about, preaching the good news. The other important term to note that's translated sometimes as proclaim is keruso. This word is more or most frequently translated as preach. And in fact, the noun form, the kerux, this is what's translated as preacher. Uh, sometimes it is translated as proclaim. And this means literally to act as a herald. So someone who's bringing these tidings here. And all of this put together, when we understand this historical background and we understand what these words quite literally mean, this helps us to better understand what it is that we're proclaiming, what it means for us to proclaim. This takes us back even what we looked at last week for those of you who were here when we talked about kingdom. The gospel, the good news, is that God is becoming king. Remember, that's what we talked about when we talked about kingdom last week, that this is God's rule, God's reign breaking into the world. Well, just like we go around proclaiming that there's a new emperor, that's what we're talking about when we're proclaiming the gospel. God is taking charge. God is setting things right in Jesus. The crucified and resurrected Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah of Israel, and that means that he is the one rightful Lord of the entire world. So in other words, when we're proclaiming, when we're preaching, we're acting as heralds of this new emperor. We're going out into the world and we're saying that there's a new king. It's King Jesus. God's taking charge here in him. Now, whenever that herald went out in the Roman world and he said, there's a new emperor and there's going to be peace and justice and prosperity, Everybody knew that that was bunk, <laughs> that it's, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Nothing was going to change. It's just some Roman aristocrat, and he's going to rule with his thumb over us, just like always. Those, those promises about some new age, they were all as empty as ever. But the gospel is the promise of God's justice and God's peace. God's reign is very different from that of any earthly king. God is at last making all things new. What the prophets had looked forward to all along, this is taking place now. That's good news for the entire world, collectively. 
But it's good news for us as individuals too because God's not only becoming king, he's inviting us to become citizens of that kingdom. Submit to him. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus as king. And inherent in this kingdom of God is the idea of forgiveness of sins, that each of us individually can have our sins forgiven. That's one of the promises of the new covenant that we know from the Old Testament, I'll forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. That's what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, when God will make this new covenant. But not only that, when you think about the reason that the prophets were looking forward to God taking charge, becoming king in the first place. It's because Israel was oppressed. They were in exile. And the reason for that was they sinned. They rebelled against God. And so wrapped up in this promise of the new age, this is all about forgiveness of sins. When God sets things right, he'll forgive the sins of his people. In fact, that's what Jesus went around announcing, isn't it? When he went around preaching that the kingdom of God was here, he also went around forgiving people's sins. It caused a lot of commotion, if you remember. Who is this man who goes around forgiving sins? Well, that's part and parcel of this new reign, this rule of God. So as part of taking charge of the world, God's offering to remake you too. Take your sins away when you become part of his kingdom. And when we understand all of that, that's where the proclamation of the gospel comes in. This is where we have the connection between God's action, what he's done in Christ, and the human response, because we have to decide to become part of that kingdom, don't we? We have to do something. Well, the proclamation is what comes in between what God does and what we do in response to that proclamation. And we have a, a parallel to that in the story of Israel, in Israel's history. It was God's initiative, God's gracious act of deliverance in the Exodus that resulted in Israel being led up out of Egypt, delivered from their bondage there. So God's people were created here through this common deliverance that they experienced. But they still needed to be organized. They still needed to be given this distinctive way of life. And that's where the giving of the law at Sinai came in, right? Moses went up, got these, gave them to the people, and they had to agree that they were going to live by those. They had to respond to this proclamation that was given in order to come into this covenant relationship with God. So there's a victory that God wins in the Exodus, and then there is a, a proclamation of that victory that the people either accept or reject if they want to be in that relationship with God as their king. It's the same thing that we see in the New Testament. Calvary had to be followed by Pentecost. That victory that God won in Christ had to be followed by that public proclamation of that victory. As Peter says there, that God has made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ, whom you've crucified. That's the climax of his sermon. The crucifixion, the resurrection, those were God's initiative. God did that. But there has to be some sort of human response if we're going to take advantage of that. And for that to occur, for us to be able to respond, we've got to communicate what God did. 
So that's what comes in between. And that's why proclaiming is so important. Now, even that proclamation is initiated by God, isn't it? And I think that's worth us mentioning too, that while this salvation, while God's becoming king, that's action that he initiates. Even though we go and do the proclaiming, God's ultimately the one who tells us to do that. He gives that great commission. He tells us to go and to to preach the gospel to all nations. But that has to be done before we can receive it. That's how God's action is united with our reception of what he's done. You compare that to the way some people have thought about this, some groups throughout history. In the Middle Ages, they put a big emphasis on the sacraments. That's how we receive God's grace. A lot of modern revivalism or Pentecostalism puts a big emphasis on the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. But what we see in Scripture is that it's preaching that holds this place. The proclamation of what God has done in Christ, we have to receive that or reject it, as the case may be. So in a real sense, this proclamation, this preaching of the gospel, is what creates the church. There wouldn't be a people of God without that. And that should tell us why this is so important, to go out and announce this news that God has become king and to give us this opportunity to become citizens of that kingdom. And I want us to focus now on applying this. Why is this important? And I just want to make two applications tonight. Proclaim is a verb. This is something that we do. And so I want us to think about how we do this, especially since it's of such fundamental significance as we've seen. The first thing to think about has to do with the herald, the proclaimer, the preacher, the evangelist, The synoptic gospels and the book of Acts all sum up Jesus' ministry as one of proclaiming, of preaching. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark sums it up here at the beginning this way. He says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Luke chapter 4 and verse number 18, this is Jesus reading from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, and among other things, it says there that he has sent me to proclaim the good news. Or you could look at Peter's sermon in the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, where he sums up Jesus' ministry, and he says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So Jesus was a preacher. He was a proclaimer. Jesus was the preacher, in fact. And evangelists in the church continue that proclaiming work of Jesus. We've talked before about how the church continues the ministry of Jesus. Well, those who are engaged in evangelism are continuing that preaching ministry of Jesus. They take the lead in that task of proclamation. When we look at the way proclaiming is described in the New Testament, verbal forms of preaching or of bringing the good news are much more common than the nouns. Uh, That is, we find frequently, dozens and dozens of times, preaching as a verb or 
proclaiming the gospel, euangelizomai. We only find by comparison three occurrences each of the nouns, that is, evangelist rather than evangelizing, or preacher rather than preaching. And that points us to the fact that the emphasis here isn't on the man, it's not about him, it's about what's being done. It's about that act of proclamation. That's what's important. I think about the way Paul describes himself as just holding this treasure in a jar of clay. He's nothing special. He's nothing important. It's that proclamation that he's bringing that's important. Nevertheless, even though the man himself isn't important in any sort of special way, it is clear that this is an office in the church, that of evangelist, if we want to refer to it that way as an office. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, he says, do the work of an evangelist. That points us to the fact that this is a role to be carried out. Or we could look at the way that Philip is identified in Acts chapter 21 and verse 8 as Philip the evangelist. That's pretty fitting, consider what we know about Philip, the fact that he went down and he preached the gospel in Samaria, converted several there, or especially the way that he preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. When we think about doing the work of an evangelist, this proclaiming, it's important that we remember what that work is. I don't know if any of you ever have been familiar with the the elders, uh, probably are from others that they've seen, maybe some of the rest of you are, but if you ever go look at ads that churches post when they're looking for a preacher, these help wanted ads, I really looked at a lot of these, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, I suppose, and First of all, of course, we have the qualifications, and these are all ideal. You know, we want him to be 25 or 35 to 40 years old, but he needs to have 25 years of experience, and he needs to have uh, 2.5 children still living at home, and he needs to have uh, a wife who's supportive in his ministry, you know, all of these things. But what's really interesting is when they start to describe the role that the preacher is going to have, the job description. And this can tell you a lot about the church. And incidentally, the congregation here didn't have an ad like this. Otherwise, I wouldn't have sent it in a resume. Um, this is the only place I sent one in. I think I've said that before, but uh, it's something that I didn't consider lightly. This is literally the only place I ever sent a resume in. But you'll find things, no exaggeration, like he must be in his office for 40 hours a week, 8 to 5. He needs to be visible in the community. He needs to be a master of of social media and the internet. He needs to be tech savvy. Uh, He needs to be able to to cast a vision, to set goals, to be able to sit down with the elders and to say what he thinks the congregation needs to go in in terms of direction. He needs to be able to counsel members with their personal problems. He needs to go and to uh, visit members in the hospitals or in their homes. He needs to provide the congregation with pastoral care. And almost as an afterthought, we'll have in there, oh, and he needs to preach on Sunday and teach Bible class on Wednesday night. Now, aside from the fact that no man can possibly do all of those things well, I mean, I suppose there are some unicorns out there that might be able to, but you'll note that some of those things are even mutually contradictory. Good luck finding a fellow who's introverted enough to be able to study all that time and to bring these great lessons while at the same time being out in the community and meeting people. It's, it's just unrealistic for one thing. 
But when we start to pile all of these things up, we ignore the fact that the preacher's primary job is to preach. That's his most important job, to proclaim the gospel, first and foremost, above all else. Now, some of those things help facilitate it, yes. And some of those things are important in our modern world when the preacher, right or wrong, is sort of the face of the congregation. Some of those things that are listed are important there. And some of those are just part of his Christian duty, going and visiting people, helping them as best he can. Those are things that we should all be engaged in, really, whether we're preachers or not. Sometimes churches wrongly sort of outsource that to the preacher. But you know, those are things that you should be doing. Uh, acting as a, a taxi. I've done a lot of that <laughs> in the time that I've been here for different people. Or uh, I've seen my dad have to act sometimes as, you know, plumber, carpenter, mechanic. I'm thankful that I have none of those skills, so nobody even needs to call me uh, if they have any problems like that. But the point is not that any of those things are wrong in and of themselves or that Uh, Some of these things might not facilitate preaching the gospel, but sometimes churches need to adjust their priorities because they forget what the preacher really fundamentally is supposed to be doing. But that doesn't just go for churches. Sometimes preachers need to adjust their priorities too. I read a story just this week, a firsthand account from a, a fellow who preaches in another church, and he's, he's several years uh, older than I am, but he's giving advice to younger preachers. And he talks about when he was a young preacher, he made a priority to visit all the time. And when I say all the time, he had these rules that he followed, not rules that anybody ever said he had to follow, but these he set for himself. He visited people in the hospital multiple times, two or three times. And when I say multiple times, I don't mean multiple times during their hospital stay, which I try to do. And I don't mean multiple times a week. I mean multiple times a day to the point that it actually got to be a burden to people, unbeknownst to him. He was trying to show people that he cared. But at one point, a lady said her husband was having surgery and please not to come because they felt this pressure to to entertain him. And the upshot was, I mean, he had much more specific information, but the upshot of this was after about eight years at this church, the elders asked him to resign because he spent so much time doing this, and aside from a daily radio program he had and articles that he had to write for the paper, etc., that he basically started recycling his old sermons and he'd sort of run out of ideas, and he neglected what's really the most important part of his job, to do these things that are not unimportant, but they're not really what his focus should be. The work of an evangelist, Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Now, when we see evangelist, we might think of evangelism. So sometimes we tend to think that means it's primarily about planning churches, making new converts. It's not limited to that, even though it includes that. If you read through Paul's letters to Timothy, his letters to Titus, Timothy and Titus are instructed to strengthen the faith of people in churches that are already well established. I mean, Timothy's working in Ephesus, after all. That church had been around for a long time at this point. Paul had even worked there himself for years. They're to give instructions in Christian living. They're to refute error. They're to help set the churches in order there, and they're to help train others in that ministry that they're engaged in, too. 
But all of that is intimately related to proclaiming the word. All of these things here go together. It's not that those other things are unimportant. They might help with that job of proclaiming the word, but the evangelist, remember, he continues that preaching ministry of Jesus. That's his, his first job. Everything else is, is secondary to that. But with that said, the second big point I want to make before we go home, and this matters to, to all of us, proclaiming might be the special job of the evangelist in a certain sense, but it isn't limited to the evangelist. We mentioned the Great Commission already. That's given in different forms in all the synoptic gospels, but Jesus gave that to all his disciples, didn't he? To go into all the world, to make disciples of all nations, to teach them to observe the things that I have commanded you, or as Mark puts it, to go and to preach the gospel to every creature. A great example of every disciple being involved in this is in Acts chapter 8. Remember this? The persecution that breaks out in the aftermath of Stephen's death. They stone Stephen, they've killed him, and the church is just scattered. But what happens? It says that those disciples went everywhere preaching the word. All of them preaching, proclaiming. That's this word that we're talking about here. And the results that they had from that were tremendous. That's how all those churches began to be planted outside of Jerusalem. You see, the point is, those who are on the staff aren't the only preachers in any church. And that doesn't matter whether it's a staff of one, like we have here, one preacher, or if we've got a staff of, of 50. Uh, we'll have dozens, you know, at some larger congregations. People who are sitting in the pews are preachers in just as real a sense as the person who's standing up here proclaiming in the services every Sunday is. Because the Christian who's sitting there in a pew on a week-by-week basis interprets Jesus to others in real terms, in hopefully convincing and winning terms. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, what kind of preaching are we doing? You know, one kind is just what we say. It's the things that we say on a regular basis, seven days a week. Now, at some point, the devil has managed to convince us that he should never talk about religion. It's just too controversial. People's feelings can get hurt. It can be upsetting. But remember, this is good news, right? That's what this word means, bringing the good news. And we should never be reluctant to bring good news to people. When we talk about the life-changing power of the gospel of Christ, it shouldn't hurt feelings, it shouldn't step on toes unless they're convicted, but ultimately it should be uplifting if they really respond to it. Because it should communicate faith and hope and love to those people who are around us, people who desperately need that. And of course, our preaching doesn't only come about by what we say, it also comes about by what we do. We know that our actions speak far louder than our words. We can proclaim in action just as much or more than we can proclaim in terms of what we verbally speak. You think about yourself. What is it that strengthens your faith, your devotion, your commitment the most? Is it a sermon? Is it something that I preach? I mean, I hope from time to time those have an effect on you, but I don't have any illusions that that's what is most convicting for us. 
Isn't it when you actually see someone live out that faith? Isn't it when you see someone who's devoted to God and demonstrates that in their example? Someone whose attitude is characterized by mercy, by grace. Someone whose life is filled with love and their acts are in harmony with the things we profess to believe. Someone who does right by their fellow man. Well, I think a sermon in action like that is far more powerful than anything I'm ever going to say from behind this podium. The most powerful proclamation that there is is an attractive example that's what jesus means in the sermon on the mount when he talks about us being salt and light going out and living in particular ways in the world that's what peter means when he says we need to go out and live our lives so that outsiders will see it and they'll be led to glorify god on the day of visitation that's first peter 2 verses 11 and 12 so in terms of the proclamation that you and I make on a regular basis, the greatest proclamation we can make is the fellowship that we experience with our fellow man day by day, every day of our lives. And that's not because any one of us possesses any sort of great power. It's the power of the gospel, that good news that's at work in us. So the question I think we all should ask ourselves before we leave here tonight is what kind of proclamation are we making with our lives? Are we preaching the gospel with the way that we live? Or are we denying it with the way that we live? If in order to preach that sermon, to proclaim the word with your life, you need to make changes tonight, Please, take the opportunity you have now to make those while we stand and while we sing. Feet of the kingdom, brother in the morning, bright 